be turning with me, if you will, <clears throat> to Galatians chapter 5, where we find the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, and as you're turning there, you may be familiar with a, a man's name, Louis Zemperini. And this man was the subject of uh, a book. He also wrote, I think, an autobiography. And there was also a movie that was produced about him that came out, I think, last year. And, and this man's life is, is a life full of, of difficulty and hardship. And so as a, as a young person in high school, he, he dealt a lot with bullying. And he was made fun of very often and really bad. And then later on in his life, in, in his high school career, he started running. He decided that he running and so he began running and he, he, he got so good at running because he would do it all the time that he became eligible to perform in the Olympics and so sure enough in the 1936 Olympics he qualified to go and to run uh, and, and as a result of just some injustice to him by other runners by people on, on his own country's team dealt with very harsh and things did not go well for him he probably should have had and then he joined the Air Force, <clears throat> and his life doesn't get any better, okay? It gets even worse. So he, he, he's in the Air Force. He's on a, a recon mission where he's trying to search for a missing plane that had gone down, and his plane in and of itself ends up having technical difficulties. He goes down into the Pacific, and 11, or, sorry, eight of the 11 crew members died. But he survived with two others, and they lived in a life raft for 47 days. They survived 47 days in a life raft, drinking rainwater and eating fish and whatever birds were, were landing on their little, little life raft. And so sure enough, you think that's bad. After 47 days, they finally see land. And so they're getting close enough to this land and they're thinking, man, maybe we've got, maybe we'll get rescued. And sure enough, it's an island that's uh, it's, uh, taken over by the Japanese. And so he becomes a prisoner of war. And so things have seemed like in his life they just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And so sure enough, he becomes a prisoner of war to the Japanese for two years. After about a year, he had been, he had been uh, labeled as killed in action. And so his family back home is probably thinking there's no hope. He's obviously been killed. But then the war ends. And when the war's over, all the, all the prisoner of, prisoners of war are released and they come home. And so this guy, who everyone thought was dead, is now home. He, he's a hero. He survived being tortured in prison and, and, a, and a plane crash and all this stuff. And so now, as he's back in the United States, he's treated as a hero. This guy has, has been through so much. And so now, as a hero, we would think, man, his life can only get better. His life can only improve. If you, if you look at the course of his life, it just seemed like it was bad, 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 worse, 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 awful, awful, awful. But now he's a hero. Now he's a war hero. He's been through a whole bunch. And you would think that his life would start to look up. That maybe he would start to get a little bit of peace in his life. But that's not at all what happened. He was so filled with hate towards his captors and the people that treated him poorly that he turned to alcohol. And, and, and as he turned to alcohol, it almost ruined his marriage, and it, it almost ruined a whole bunch of things in his life. And so we would think, from an outsider looking in, with how awful his life is, becoming a hero might make things better. Being a national hero or a war hero or whatever you want to refer to him as, we would think that his life would now be peaceful, that he wouldn't have all these 
mis being mistreated and, and, and people would think a little bit better of him. But that's not actually what happened at all. And for you and for me, as we think about peace, all of us strive for peace. All of us have this, this inner desire for peace. Whether that's in our relationships with our, our spouse, we don't like fighting. We want to get along. We want there to be no conflict, but we want there to be peace. Whether that's with the relationship with our employer, we want there to be a good relationship there. We want to have peace in that relationship. Whether it's peace of mind with the decisions that we make, whether they're financial or whether it's a career move or, or whether it is to, to have children or to not have children or whatever it is, we want peace. And so deep down in, in our hearts, we desire peace. We strive for peace. As we think about this, this presidential election that's coming up, already you're seeing candidates who are running and what's one of the big questions that they're being asked? What are you going to do about foreign affairs? How are you going to create peace with our enemies or with foreign countries? How, how are we going to have a good, peaceful existence here on earth if you're the president? Because we want peace. We strive for peace. We value peace. And so Paul, here in, in this book to, to the, the people of Galatia, is saying that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. And so we want to understand what that means, that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. We want to understand what it looks like if the, if the Spirit of God is producing peace in our lives. But I think the first question that we need to ask ourselves is why we have this random list of fruits of the Spirit. Because we, we find ourselves here in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 22. So let's read verses 22 and 23. It says, but, of, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so here we find a, a random, seemingly random list of fruits of the Spirit. And, and when Paul is talking about a fruit of the Spirit, he's talking about this is the way the Spirit will manifest itself in the life of a believer. This is what's going to be evident in your life if the Spirit is working in you. And so we've got to ask ourselves, well, why, why is this list here? Why is Paul giving us this list? If you notice right before this list, starting in verse 19, we have another list. And that's the works of the flesh. Look with me at verse 19. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so now, now we've got two lists. One, we've got the works of the flesh, and now we've got the fruits of the Spirit. And so we've got to be asking ourselves, why is Paul giving us these lists to begin with? Because it seems pretty random. But if we look back to the beginning of chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, we start to get an idea of why these lists are here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so one of the issues that Paul is dealing with in the church at Galatia is that they are dealing with false teaching that they must also, along with believing in Jesus, they must still keep the Old Testament law, specifically circumcision. 
Now we know that circumcision in the Old Testament was the way that God's people differentiated themselves from the rest of the world. God said, you will circumcise yourselves and this will be the sign, okay, that you are my people. And so that is is a prominent theme in the Old Testament. And so now people here in New Testament times, post-Jesus, are saying, well, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also still must be circumcised. And Paul is saying, no, we've been set free from that law. We've been set free from that. He says, Christ, uh, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Okay, so we are no longer having to obey those Old Testament laws in the same way that, that the, the Israelites did. Not saying we can disobey God, but there were things that were required of them that are no longer required of us. And so now Paul is saying we are free in Christ. So Paul is aware that this is probably going to cause some people to be thinking, well, if we're just free in Christ, let's live it up. Let's do whatever we want. Paul is aware that people are going to go there. And so again, verse 13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So here, Paul is fully aware that people are going to take what he says to the wrong conclusion. And Paul is saying, "Uh uh-uh, you are not free to do whatever you want. Okay? You are set free from the law, not so that you can continue to live in sin, but that you can serve one another through love. And so now, we have a little better understanding of why we have these lists. Paul is saying, we as believers, as people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, need to walk according to the flesh. We're not free to continue living in sin. And now Paul is saying, here's how you can tell if someone is living in sin or walking by the flesh or if they're walking by the Spirit. Here's the two lists, okay? Because you and I, we don't have the advantage of being able to see someone's heart. I can't see inside of you and and deep down what you truly believe. I don't have that ability. But here's what I can do. I can inspect the fruit of your life and, and draw a reasonable conclusion on what is going on inside of you. And so that is why Paul gives us these lists. He says, here is evidence that you're living according to the flesh, that you probably are thinking that this freedom means you can do whatever you want. And he, he lists off uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and on and on and on. And Paul is saying, if you see that people in your church have these qualities about them, you can be sure that they are living according to the flesh. But on the contrary, he says, now look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says, if you see these qualities in someone you can probably draw the conclusion that they are walking by the Spirit, that they are living according to the Spirit. So we're going to focus on peace this evening. And one of the things that we need to do, and I guess the hardest part about this entire series, is understanding what it means for peace to be in our lives or for for the fruit of the Spirit to be peace in our lives. What does that look like? What does that mean for us? And so what we need to do is we need to start back in the Old Testament. Because peace, if you just do a a Bible search, like entire Bible, you just type in the word peace, it's going to pop up a lot. It was hard to whittle down the the verses that I was going to use to help us understand these things because there's so many. And so, first of all, as as I normally do, I look up definitions of of key words. And obviously peace is a a key word tonight. We're dealing with peace. And so we want to understand a definition. And so an Old Testament scholar, Ray Clendenin, defines the Old Testament 
definition of peace as the Hebrew word shalom and its derivatives have been said to represent one of the most uh, prominent theological concepts in the Old Testament. The word group occurs more than 180 times in the Old Testament. He says it was not a negative or passive concept, but it involved wholeness and completeness. The related verb could mean to repay or to fulfill a vow, and so referred to completing or repairing a relationship. A related adjective could also be used to describe something as uninjured, safe, complete, or peaceable. Then he goes on to talk about some specific uses of of the term peace or shalom in the Old Testament. And one of the uses was to refer to harmony between friends. So you don't need to turn to all these different uh, passages that I'm going to quote. I'll read them to you. But Genesis 29, verse 6 says, And he said to them, Is it well with you? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And this term, is it well with you, is is, uh, translated from shalom. It doesn't use the word peace in our English translation, but it's the same Hebrew word. And so it's, it's like this uh, harmony between friends. Is it well with you? Are things okay with you? And again, in 2 Samuel 18, verse 29, the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Again, in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 26, he says, run at, run at once and meet her, and say to her, Is all well with you? And so peace is used as a way to refer to harmony between friends. People wanted to know if things were okay with, with each other. So that's one of the uses of peace in the Old Testament. Now, a more important use of peace in the Old Testament was a peace treaty, okay? Now, there's, there's tons of these in the Old Testament, but here's a couple examples. Genesis chapter 26, verse 31, says, In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. And so they're exchanging an oath. They're agreeing that there's going to be peace between them. There's not going to be conflict, all right? They're going to mutually agree to this, and so they can go and not have to worry about one of them backstabbing the other. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have both sworn an oath in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. So again, we see this idea of a, of a treaty between people. That there's peace between these two. No, no conflict. They're agreeing to, uh, to have a peaceable relationship with, with one another. But the most important use of peace in the Old Testament is is the way God uses this idea of peace towards his people. God has a covenant of peace with his people, which includes an assurance of an enduring relationship with one who is our peace. And it's a pledge to protect their welfare and to abundantly bless them by his divine grace, wisdom, and power. So God has agreed that there's, there's going to be a covenant of peace between him and between his, his people. And this, this covenant of peace means that God is going to treat them with peace. There is going to be um, not conflict. There's going to be uh, confidence in, in our Savior, in God. So let's look at a couple verses that, that talk about this. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10 says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord. So here, God is promising with his people that he is going to have a covenant of peace with them. That God is going to treat his people with peace. Not going to be war, not going to be fighting, not going to be arguing. There's going to be peace, calm. 
We can trust him. Again, in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 25, he says, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. A couple chapters over, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 26, he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. So again, God is promising to have this covenant of peace with his people. Again, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 5, he says, My covenant with him uh, was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. I was a covenant, it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. So God has promised that he is going to keep a covenant of peace with his people. But then also, God has promised that he himself will be their peace. Now this is important. This is really important because if we understand God having peace with his people, it has to come about in in a certain way. And we don't understand how that is, but God explains. He says, I myself am going to be your peace. It's not just this random abstract happiness that you're going to have or, or, or worry that you're not going to have. God is saying, I will provide peace and it will be through me. I will be your peace. So look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Sorry, you don't need to turn there, but this is, this is a verse that's probably popular or familiar to a lot of us. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so here's someone that God is promising to his people. He's going to send a Savior. And this Savior is going to be known by one of these many names as Prince of Peace. Again, in Micah chapter 5, verse 5, he says, talking about this this promised Messiah, He shall be their peace. So God has promised a covenant of peace with His people. And God has promised that He Himself is going to be their peace. And so now... We have an idea of how the Old Testament uses peace. There's a couple different uses, but most importantly, we need to know that God has promised peace to his people, and God has promised that he himself is going to be that peace. He's going to be the one that provides it. So now we have to understand a little bit of how how peace is used in the New Testament, and how the New Testament writers understand this concept of peace. Now we know that the Old Testament has been uh, the, the Old Testament writers, specifically the prophets, are looking forward to what God has said. They're looking forward to a promise that God has made. They're saying, we, we see that God is going to keep this promise. We're writing and, and instructing, or we're writing what God has instructed us to write. And now in the New Testament, we have, we have the advantage of seeing that fulfilled. We have the advantage of reading the, Old Test- the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. And now we see how God used those Old Testament prophets and how he actually brought about what he had promised. And so now we move to, to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. It says that God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. And so again, we have this idea that yes, peace does mean that there is not confusion, not conflict. But it says that God is a God of peace, not confusion. And so we, we understand that nothing has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is still the same. But even more specifically, now we see that, that peace in the New Testament also refers to being safe and secure. 
Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so we see that God has not changed. He promised peace to His people in the Old Testament. He provided that through the promised land. There were years of peace. Although they disobeyed, there were also years of war. But God promised that there would be peace and that He Himself would be that peace. And so now, as we have seen from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God has not changed. He is still promising peace to His people. He is still promising that He will be their peace. But now, in the New Testament, we see exactly who is going to be our peace. And that's Jesus. Look at, it. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Paul, this is Paul writing talking about Jesus, and he says, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And so now we see what God meant when He said that He Himself will be their peace, and that's in Jesus. God has fulfilled that promise by sending Jesus. Now we understand that Jesus is fully God while also being fully man. And so He is fully God. And what He provides for us is He is our peace. Our peace that God promised that would be in Him is now fulfilled in Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Again, this is Paul writing and talking about Jesus. This is a strong, a strong passage about Jesus. Paul says, Through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So now we understand how peace is provided in Jesus. God has, God has promised that his people will have peace. He's promised that He Himself will be their peace. And now we see here in Colossians, this is just Paul explaining, we actually see it in the Gospels, but we see how Jesus becomes our peace. Because Jesus makes peace by the blood of His cross. We may look at the cross and not think that that is peace. We may not think of peace at all when we, when we read the, the, the account of Jesus being crucified. Because to me, that doesn't sound like that's, that's peaceful at all. But what, but what is actually happening when Jesus is crucified on the cross is that peace is being made between God and man. And Paul is saying, Jesus is making peace for us through the blood of his cross. Through Jesus dying on the cross, through him shedding his blood, peace is being made for you and for me. Peace between us and God. Because the problem with all of humanity drives all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where, where man sinned. And what happened at that moment was we no longer had peace with God. Our relationship with God was broken and severed. And Jesus comes to fix that. Jesus comes to now bring that peace back between man and God. So what does it mean for the believer to have peace in our life? So if we are walking by the Spirit, if we're not living according to the flesh, but walking by the Spirit, we've seen that we're going to have love. We've seen that we're going to have joy 
And now we're seeing that we're going to have peace. And so what does it mean for there to, have, for there to be peace in the life of a believer? Well, I think there's, there's two main things that we'll see. One is that we'll have peace with God. That's, that's the first and most important. That you and I will have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It echoes the words of Colossians. You and I have peace with God only because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And for those who have placed their faith in Jesus and who have believed in Him, we are at peace with God. And when you grasp that concept, when you fully understand what that verse is saying, Romans 5.1, it will change your life. All of us still sin. Unfortunately, there's, there's, there's no way we can continue in life without sin. We can't be perfectly sinless, and we won't be until we're ushered into glory. But once we believe in Jesus, once we place our faith in Him, we're at peace with God. That means God is not getting angry and upset and wanting to, to just destroy us every time we, we sin. That's not how God treats us. When we are forgiven, it means we are justified. Okay? He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. If you've been justified, you are at peace with God. It's not like you're at peace with God right now until you sin again. You are at peace with God for all of eternity. It's incredible. So the fruit of the Spirit working in us is going to show itself in that we are at peace with God. But it's also going to show itself in that we are at peace with the people of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of peace and the God of love and peace will be with you all. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, listen to, listen to the first couple verses. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you and I are walking by the Spirit, it's going to display itself. It will be evident by the fact that we are at peace with one another. We'll be at peace with God and we'll also be at peace with one another. Now what this does not mean is that we'll have peace with everything, every circumstance in life. If you remember, at the beginning I talked about this man named Louis Zamperini. And Louis Zamperini had a, a very difficult life. A lot, of, a lot of struggles, a lot of difficulty... And when he came home as a war hero, a lot of us would have thought, man, life should be great now. He should be happy. I'm sure people are buying him meals and, and just like so thankful uh, and, and appreciative to hear his war stories and to hear about his life. But the fact is, he had anything but peace. He actually was, was still filled with hate. But in 1949, Louis went to a Billy Graham crusade. And in 1949, Louis heard the gospel preached. And in 1949, 
Let me say it in the words of Louis Zamperini. He says, I dropped to my knees and for the first time in my life truly humbled myself before the Lord. I asked him to forgive me for not having kept the promises I'd made during the war and for my sinful life. I made no excuses. I did not rationalize. I did not blame. He said, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I took him at his word. I begged for his pardon and asked Jesus to come into my life. Peace replaced Louis's anger. Peace now became all about Louis's life. Louis no longer hated his captors, those who had treated him so poorly. He said if, if he had the chance, he would go to Japan, find them, and, and tell them face to face that he had forgiven him. Because true peace does not come in the absence of controversy. True peace does not come in the absence of difficulty. True peace is found in the forgiveness of sins. That's what Louis realized. It doesn't matter what happened in Louis's life, he had no peace until he had been forgiven of his sins. And for you and for me, that's what we need. That is our ultimate need. More than anything else in, in our life, more than, more than peace with our employer, more than peace with our spouse, more than peace with our decisions, we need peace with God. And that only comes through the forgiveness of sins. You and I can't have peace. But it will only come as we are forgiven of our sins. That only comes through Jesus. Through his blood spilt on the cross. And so Paul wants us to know that if we're walking according to the flesh, we're going to be people full of love. We're going to be people full of joy. And we're going to be people that are full of peace. Because we have been forgiven of our sins. And if you haven't been forgiven of your sins, you will never find true peace. True peace is found only in Jesus. His blood shed on the cross. If you are looking for peace, if you need peace in your life, you will find it nowhere else but at the cross of Jesus. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. God, we thank you so much for peace. Apart from Jesus, we have no hope to be at peace with God. So we're thankful for what you have done on the cross on our behalf. God, as we take the elements of communion now, we are reminded that your body was broken, that your blood was shed, so that we can have peace with God. I pray that our faith would be on Jesus, and that we would know that when we place our faith in Jesus, we are justified before God, and we have peace with him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.